0: Amen. You can turn back now from the beginning of 1st John to 1st John chapter 5 to the very end of this epistle. We come to our, our last in the journey through John's first letter, 1st John 5 verses 18 through 21. 1st John 5, 18 through 21. And we'll consider these verses under the heading of victory in Jesus. Victory in Jesus. In Jesus, our Savior, who has conquered, who holds us, who keeps us, who defends us. So we will see the greatness and the glory of our Savior. As we have started last time, a couple of weeks ago, looking at John's summary, beginning in verse 13, you'll recall that his writing of a certain and a sure knowledge, This is our life in Christ. Our life in Christ is a promised and assured victory. Satan wages war against us, dear friends, and we must remember and we must hope in the fact that Jesus has won the victory and he will keep us to the end. The world around us today likes to couch and caveat everything in uncertainty, you can't know everything. You can't know anything for sure, for a fact. There's a false sense where there's almost this idea of humility taken on to yourself if, if you say that you can't know anything for certain. But Scripture gives us many certainties. One of the great certainties that we get in the Holy Scriptures is the idea that Christ has defeated Satan. Satan. He has defeated sin. He has defeated death on our behalf. And all those who belong to Christ will taste and will experience this victory. That, beloved, you can know for sure. As John closes his letter, this overcoming, this victory is his final topic. Victory in Jesus. So let's read our text. If you are willing and able, I'd invite you to stand with me as we give attention to the reading of God's Word. God's Word is holy, it's inerrant, and it is inspired. This is God breathed out through His Holy Spirit. And as we read His Word, God is speaking to us. So may we give His truth all attention. 1 John 5 verse 18 God's word says we know that no one who is born of God sins but he who was from the beginning or he who was born of God keeps him and the evil one does not touch him we know that we are of God and that the whole world lies in the power of the evil one and we know that the son of God has come And has given us understanding so that we may know Him who is true. And we are in Him who is true. In His Son, Jesus Christ. This is the true God and eternal life. Little children, guard yourselves from idols. This is God's Word. May He write it upon our hearts May he sanctify our souls for the glory of his name. You may be seated. Now would you join with me and let's bow before the Lord in a word of prayer. Our great God, we bow before you and we desire to give you all praise And honor and glory. For you and you alone are worthy to receive the praise and honor of your people. You are the creator and sustainer of all things. You know all. You are wise and righteous and just. You're loving, gracious, and merciful. Yet, Lord, you will not withhold your wrath from those who die apart from Christ. And for all the greatness of your character, for all your attributes, Lord, may we give you the praise that is due your name. And Lord, for the greatness of the grace that we know in and through Christ, may we give you praise. May we come before you with humble and thankful hearts. but May we come before you confidently, knowing that we have access because we are washed in the blood of Christ, knowing that he ever lives and pleads and intercedes on our behalf. Lord, it's a great balance that we must hold. That we are humbled because we are speaking to the God of all gods. Yet we come boldly and speak and pray and make our needs known to our Heavenly Father. Lord, may we consider the glory of Christ this morning. May we consider his great power in keeping and holding and guarding us, preserving us and delivering us unto that last and final day. Lord, I pray that you would write your word upon our hearts, that your Holy Spirit would move powerfully in our lives. Lord, as we study your word, whether corporately, like we are today, or individually, privately, in our homes, or any other way, we know that we are in need of the miraculous help of your Holy Spirit. Pray that your Spirit would enlighten our hearts and our minds. Pray that we would have eyes to see and ears to hear the truth. Pray that the ground of our heart would be turned over and softened and ready for the seed of truth that is going to be planted within us. Pray that your spirit would grant growth to that and cause fruit to be born. Pray that we would bear much fruit to glorify your name. Lord, as sinful humans, we are utterly dependent upon your grace. We have many distractions from the week behind and the week ahead that could take our attention. We face many attacks from the evil one. We carry deep sorrows and heavy burdens. God, you are great and mighty, your Spirit is able to take your word and plant it in our hearts and cause it to bear fruit, and so that is our request today. Would you show us our sin? Would you grant us repentance? Would you transform our lives? Would you conform us to the image of your beloved Son, Lord, you are good to us. We don't deserve your mercy. We don't deserve your grace. We're certainly unwilling, unworthy of your eternal electing love. But Lord, how we thank you. How we praise you. Lord, may our lives be a pleasing and an acceptable sacrifice of worship in return for the greatness of the graces that you have given us. May you receive all praise and honor and glory today. I ask this in Christ's name, amen. So as we look at this last section of John's epistle, there's really a a few themes running throughout this text. We see the victory that we have in Christ over sin and Satan. We, we see the truth of God that stands, the truth that Jesus is the Christ that stands against all the falsehood from, from eternity past, from the beginning of creation. The truth of God stands. That final verse, verse 21, it almost seems like it is hanging out there dangling something that we're not quite sure why it's included. Why does John end his epistle with this exhortation that the children of the faith guard themselves from idolatry? Dear friend, let us remember, every false form of God is idolatry. Every false form of Jesus is idolatry. And where did John start his epistle? the truth of Jesus Christ. It's a bookend. Ultimately, John is painting a picture here of the contrasting lives and beliefs of those who are in God, those who are kept by Christ, and those who are in Satan, those who serve a false god those whose lives give evidence to the fact that they don't know Jesus as Savior. By the working of God, those in Christ display our life in Him by our lives being transformed. So really really this text, in a way, it's just two contrasts. The contrast of the life of those who are in Christ versus those who are in Satan and the contrast of truth, the truth of Christ, and that contrasted against idolatry. As we consider this text, dear friends, let us keep Christ in the forefront of our minds, His work, His person, and His power. We must remember that those who are born of God are delivered from the enslaving effects of Satan and sin, not by anything that we do. We are not kept in God by anything that we can accomplish, but we are kept by the power of Christ. And in that, there is great hope. But in that is also a great exhortation because if you are kept, you have no excuse to remain in your sin. What did Christ promise us? That he will keep his sheep, promise that he will lose none who are his. He promised that all who belong to him will hear his voice. My sheep hear my voice, and they know me, and they follow me. That is the sure hope and promise of Christ. Christ's sheep are set apart from the world, and that is evidenced by our right belief in Christ. Right belief in Christ is evidenced by that transformed life. Any knowledge of Jesus that opposes what he himself has revealed in his word, any knowledge that opposes what Jesus has revealed about himself in in his word is a false knowledge, and it's a false knowledge that leads you to false belief and false worship, and ultimately, the bookend of this epistle, it leads you to idolatry. So let's sum this up and bound our study with a thesis and purpose statement. The lives of Christ's people prove that they are delivered from the power of sin, that we are kept by the power of Christ, and that we stand by the power of the truth. Your life as a follower of Christ must prove that you are kept by the power of Christ, that you are delivered from the power of sin, and that you stand by the power, and in the power, and through the power of his truth. So three headings, and they'll kind of run over each other a little bit, at least in the first couple of verses. Three headings to consider today. We are kept by Christ, we are kept from Satan, and we are kept in the truth. so We'll begin by looking at the idea of being kept by Christ. Kept by Christ in verse 18. We know that no one who is born of God sins, but he who was born of God keeps him, and the evil one does not touch him. So there is a cosmic spiritual warfare being pictured in verses 18 and 19. Satan seeks to drag us into sin, but Christ keeps us in the purity to which he calls us. Do you see that, dear friend? Christ keeps you. He calls you to purity, and he pulls you into that purity of life. Because Satan seeks to drag you, to grab you, to pull you down into sin. But Christ keeps you. We start by considering the surety of God's transforming work. What does John begin with? He says, we know, we know that no one who is born of God sins. Do you see and do you realize that this text builds around these three we know statements? We know that no one who is born of God sins. Verse 19, we know that we are of God. And we know that the Son of God has come and He's given us understanding. He's enlightened our eyes to see that He is the one that is true. Do you see, dear friend, that John writes with firmness? And he writes with confidence. He writes because he wants the saints to know and to stand upon and to be strengthened by these truths. Again, said it earlier, and we'll come back to the idea and the statement again. We live in a day where the world presents it as a good and a positive thing to act as though there are no absolutes. And the challenge with that is that we have absolutes. And as we stand upon absolutes, what are you going to be called by those who are in the world? You're going to be considered prideful and arrogant and all kinds of negative things know that God's word is true we stand upon the truth that he reveals John says we know that those born of God don't sin we know that we are of God and those who are in the world are of the power of the evil one he says we know that Jesus is the Christ not perhaps not maybe not we hope but we know Certainties, beloved, are good when they are biblical. When they are clear, revealed truths of Scripture, certainties are good. We can go as far as to say that every clear statement and command of Scripture should lead us to a clear application, a clear, hard, confident stand on what we believe. There are things in Scripture that may not be as clear as others. And we can exercise humility in those things. We can exercise humility when we have a hard, clear stand on the truth. But make no mistake, when something is clear in Scripture, like when John says, We know that no one who is born of God practices sin, we take a clear, hard, firm stand. That is the clear biblical fact that John begins with. We know that no one who is born of God sins. Sins is in the present tense and the active voice, so what that ultimately speaks to is something that is ongoing. It ought to point you back in your mind to chapter 3, verses 4 and verse 10. Everyone who practices sin also practices lawlessness and sin is lawlessness. Verse 10, John said, anyone who does not practice righteousness is not of God. It is the ongoing habitual pattern and practice of our life that marks whether or not we are of God or remain in the power of Satan. We could even go back to chapter three, verse two, to see the root of all this. Chapter 3, verse 2, John says, We know that when He appears, we will be like Him, because we'll see Him just as He is. So you see this progressive journey, just the most infinitely small step of that sanctification takes place on this earth. But when we see Him, when we go to be with Him, John says we'll be like Him because we'll see Him as He is. We'll be transformed. We will be sanctified. We will be conformed to the image of our Savior. We will be, as Paul would tell the Romans, glorified. If the Lord is going to do that for us one day to make us where we are able to worship perfectly, to make us utterly unable to sin, dear friend, the 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 progress of that, the progression of that starts today. We know that no one who is born of God continues in the practice of sin. Those whom the Lord saves, He is sanctifying, and He is readying for His eternal glory. And He does that by regenerating your soul. He does that because by making you a new creation, a new creature. 2 Corinthians 5.17 If anyone is in Christ, he is a new creature, a new creation. The old things have passed away and new things have come. While we continue to make war with the body of this death, dear friend, we ought to look forward and even enjoy and walk in these present victories, knowing that the full victory comes. In glory. So you ask the question Are you born of God? Do you belong to Him? Well, the clear answer of Scripture then to that is that we know that no one who's born of God practices sin. The clear mark of your life will be an increasing righteousness. It's not a merit, it's not anything that you earn, it's not that you are. Working to gain more favor with the Lord, but as you have life in Him, His spirit empowers you to lay off the flesh and to walk in the newness of life in Christ. How is this ultimately done? How does the Lord accomplish this great work? We'll continue in the text. We know that no one who is born of God sins, but he who was born of God keeps him. He who was born of God is Jesus Christ. He who was the begotten, the only begotten Son of God, you progress in righteousness because Jesus keeps you. The doctrine is not that once you are saved, you will always remain saved by your own doing. It's not that you will never stray stray from the Lord. The doctrine is that once you are saved, you never can stray from the Lord because Christ is always at work in you. He's always preserving you. He's always keeping you. He's always pressing you forward, pressing you along in the journey of righteousness. If you know anything about the doctrines of grace, you may know the tulip, and you come to the pea of the tulip, and it is the perseverance of the saints. If you understand that doctrine, perseverance is a fine word because it's the Lord who causes you to persevere. But perhaps we ought to simplify that and call it the preservation of the saints because it's not your perseverance. It's Christ preserving you. It is the Lord completing the good work that He has begun in you. think about being given a precious gift. Think about maybe as a man in the workforce, perhaps you get a, um, an award for an outstanding service at work or, or something similar, and that's a precious gift to you. It's an honor to you because of what it costs to receive that gift, to receive that honor. And you'll take care of it. You'll probably display it in your office somewhere. And it'll be something that reminds you of the hard work that you did to be given this this merited honor. Then think about a cost that is infinitely greater than some long hours in the office. Think about the cost of the blood of the Son of God being poured out at the cross. Think about the cost of Christ taking on human flesh learning obedience even to the point of death on a cross, bearing your wrath, being utterly detested because of your sin. Consider, dear friend, that you are the Father's gift. You are the honor that the Father gives the Son for His completed work. What do you think the son is going to do with that gift? He's going to keep it, protect it, preserve it. Jesus spoke of this sum in John chapter 17, that high priestly prayer. And we won't read anything there, but I want to tell you a comment from R.C. Sproul on that chapter. Sproul said, in this prayer... It's clear that believers are the Father's gift to the Son, a gift that is not to be lost or destroyed. And Jesus prays that these gifts may be kept and not discarded. Do you understand that Christ keeps you because you are precious to him? Because if you are in him, he's washed you with his blood, and he has paid the ultimate cost to, be to receive you as his possession. He will not discard you. He will not lose you, and Satan cannot touch you. You should have hope in this because Jesus says to you, like the Lord said to Israel in Jeremiah 31, verse 3, I have loved you with an everlasting love. Do you realize that, that the love of Christ, it wasn't space and time when, when Adam and Eve sinned, that Jesus said, okay, I guess I'm going to go redeem a people. No, it's eternity past. Jesus has loved you and planned to and been willing to die for you from eternity past. He has loved you with an everlasting love. Now we have to ask the question, why does he have to keep you? Why does the son have to keep and guard his sheep? At the end of verse 18, he who is born of God keeps him and the evil one does not touch him. Satan seeks to fasten himself to to lay hold of believers. If we were to look at the Greek version of the Old Testament and consider Job 1.11, we'd see the exact same word for touch used in, in that interaction between Satan and the Lord. Job 1.11, Satan says to the Lord, but put forth your hand now and touch all that he has, and he will surely curse you to your face. Same word for touch in the Greek Old Testament and in John's epistle. Satan told the Lord, reach out and take away, lay hold of all that he has, and Job will curse you to your face. That's Satan's goal, to take hold of you, to destroy you, to condemn you, to tempt you, to Draw you away from the Lord, and to cause you to curse the Lord's name. Think about Luke chapter 22. Lord willing, we'll get to the Gospel of Luke over the next couple of months. Though getting to chapter two may take, or 22 may take, quite a while. But in Luke 22, the Lord says to Peter, verse 31: Simon. Simon, behold, Satan has demanded permission to sift you like wheat. Now, Satan does not make demands that the Lord has to give in to. But nonetheless, Satan somehow before the Lord asked permission to go sift uh, Peter like wheat. That's his desire to sift, to torment to torture to tempt to attack and to deceive believers as much as he possibly can because he seeks to draw us away from our master but what did jesus say back there in luke 22 satan has demanded permission to sift you like wheat but i have prayed for you that you're Faith may not fail. And you, when once you have turned again, strengthen your brothers. Dear friend, Jesus prays for you just like he prayed for Peter. When Satan comes to tempt you, you have the great high priest interceding for you, giving you his spirit to be your helper, to make a way of escape. To remind you of the truths of Scripture and God's commands to you and His promises to you. He prays for you that your faith will not fail. And dear friend, if Jesus prays that your faith won't fail, you can take it to the eternal bank that you will remain. You will not allow Satan to touch you. He may take everything you have. We have evidence of that in the life of Job. But your faith will not fail if you are in Christ. Jesus prays for you. He intercedes on our behalf. That should make you ready, dear friend, to go out and and literally take on the gates of hell. Because you are walking in the strength of the one who has already blasted open the gates of hell as he defeated Satan at the cross. What's the result of all this? No one who is born of God practices sin. No one who is born of God practices sin because we are kept by Christ. Just to, before we move on, tie this into that previous passage, you know, verse 16 says, if anyone sees his brother committing a sin not leading to death, he shall ask, and God will, for him, give life to those who commit sin not leading to death. Jesus prayed for Peter that his faith will not fail. Dear friend, we ought to pray for one another through Christ to the Father, When we see a brother or sister being attacked by Satan, being attacked by sin, we ought to pray like our Savior that their faith will not fail. We ought to hold one another up when the attacks of hell are coming on strong. We ought to ask the Lord to grant faith that will not yield. So we've already talked a little bit, I think, into our second heading, but we move to Verse 19, I'll give you the second heading. We're kept by Christ, and then we are kept from Satan. Kept by Christ, and then kept from Satan. Verse 19, we know that we are of God, and that the whole world lies in the power of the evil one. So, we've got the two we know statements. We know that no one born of God sins, and we know that we are of God. If we are of God, we will not sin. But let's not oversimplify this to miss the contrast of what John is showing us here. We are of God, and those who are of the world are of the power. They are enslaved by the power of the evil one. So let's follow this contrast. We'll go from lesser to greater. So we'll start at the end of verse 19 and then go to the beginning. The whole world lies in the power of the evil one. Now, if any of you have the King James translation before you, it says, the whole world lieth in wickedness. There's a definite article there, though, that, that the, the modern translations pick up on, and that's why you see the italics and the power of, because the definite article points this to a definite person, a definite source of evil and wickedness. The whole world lies in the evil, in the evil one, in his power. What are, let's ask a question here, what are the effects of Satan's power in the world? Scripture talks much about it, and we could spend hours, I think, considering the, the things we see and the way that Satan works in the world, but I'll give you a few cross-references just to whet our appetites and and give us a broad overview of the effects of Satan in the world. 2 Corinthians 4 verse 4, Paul says, the God of this world has blinded the minds of the unbelieving so that they might not see the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ. The God of this world has blinded the mind's the unbelieving, so that they don't see the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ. That's Satan's first and primary work, that he blinds hearts and minds to the glory and the good news and the hope of the gospel of Christ, because Satan's ultimate goal is to condemn your soul to hell. That is his effect in the world. Dear friends, let's realize that every person begins in that state of, of blindness everyone from conception is born into the sinful nature of adam that means that there's only one remedy against this power of satan and it's the gospel of christ being preached in the power of god and being worked out by the power of the holy spirit if you want to stand firm against satan in the ways of the world you must boldly preach christ Satan blinds the minds of the unbelieving. Paul writes in 2 Timothy 2, verse 26, that those who oppose the faithful, he said, they need to come to their senses and escape from the snare of the devil. Paul said they're held captive by him to do his will. When the devil blinds hearts and minds to the good news of the gospel, do you realize that he also cuts the mind off from reason and logic and common sense? Surely you've seen that. Surely you have witnessed one who, especially when someone has given the sense of walking with the Lord for a period, they they know the truth, but then when they are turned over to their sin, you see a complete, utter lack of reason. Because Satan has blinded their minds. They're held captive by him to do his will. You know, sinners often think that they're pursuing their own pleasures, and in a way they are. But ultimately, when somebody pursues the passions of the flesh, it's not their own pleasures they're pursuing, it's that they're doing the will of Satan. They're ensnared, they're trapped, and enslaved to sinful desires. How do we avoid that ensnarement? Especially if you are a newer believer, but this applies to the saint who's walked with the Lord for 80 years. To avoid being entrapped and enslaved by sin and by Satan. Dear friend, do not give the devil an opportunity. Don't give him a foothold. Don't give him an inch because if you give him an inch, he's going to take a mile. That means we resist every temptation. That means we live lives that are above reproach, not because we want a good name, but because we want to be guarded from Satan's attacks. Dear friend, if Satan seeks to ensnare you, you must be holy and set apart in your life. Third mark of Satan's power in the world, and and, uh, I'll give the disclaimer that this is written specifically to the end of days, but I think we can draw it forward as well and see applications and implications of this today. Revelation 13, 7 says that those who are under Satan's power make war with the saints. That is an effect of Satan's power in the world. And specifically in Revelation, it's talking about a a literal, physical war, seeking to kill the saints. And the reason we can draw that forward is because we see that today. In false converts and false religions, they make religious wars against the saints, seeking to kill those who follow Christ. When Satan can't fool or tempt a believer, he often will just ratchet up the heat. If he can't tempt you and draw you into sin, perhaps he can scare you into sin. And if he can't scare you into sin, perhaps he will bring all of his forces against you to try to end your very life. This war against the saints is certainly physical Attacks. It's verbal attacks. It can be through slander, through malice. It can be through temptation and through soliciting the saints to sin. But dear friend, we must know that Satan makes war against us. And we must stand firm knowing that we're kept by Christ. Ultimately... Satan's evil power in the world is to his ultimate end. John 12, 31, Jesus says, Now judgment is upon this world, and the ruler of this world will be cast out. In John 16, he said, The ruler of this world has been judged. He has been judged. He is sent to his eternal resting place of hell. And he seeks to take as many with him as he possibly can. So what does Satan seek in his rule over this present world? He is the prince of the power of the air. Scripture makes that clear. What does he seek? He seeks to dishonor the Lord. He seeks to steal from God's glory. And he seeks to bring souls with him to eternal judgment. Dear friends, this is what our families, this is what our children face. We must arm our children. We must arm our homes. We must arm ourselves with the truth that is needed to fight against the rising tide of Satan's worldliness. It is literally at every turn. And if you seek to play defense against this great offender, you will struggle. Go on the offensive. Arm yourself with the weapons the Lord makes available to you. And stand firm and fight. Then consider, we said we're going from lesser to greater. So let's go to the greater of verse 19. We're kept from Satan. We see that we know that we are of God. We belong to Him. He is our God and we are His people. The proof and assurance that you belong to Him is exactly what we've said. Your life is transformed. You don't look like the world because you don't belong to the world. You are a sojourner. You are walking towards a heavenly home, and as you walk towards that heavenly home, you're made to look more and more like Christ. So, dear friend, let me encourage you. You should hear this, that we are of God, and that should be one of the great overarching encouragements to you from Scripture. Hold on to that truth. But let this truth also press us in the battle. Let us hear this as a call to war. Let us hear this as a call to wage war against the worldly system of Satan. We need to proclaim Christ boldly and make every argument to prove Him against the lies of the world. You prove Christ by displaying His glory in your life and in your proclamation. You know, you think back to maybe a hundred years ago, and the culture was... I won't say predominantly Christian, but it was not anti-Christian. The world today, the culture certainly in the United States today is anti-Christ. It's anti-Christian. We can't just go out with these weak arguments, these weak proclamations of the gospel. No, we go out and we prove Christ. We unleash the lion of God's word. We tell of the King of kings and the Lord of lords. We tell of his victory. We tell of his death, his resurrection, his ascension. We tell that he will come again and he will judge the world in righteousness. We prove Christ with a true and bold proclamation. Battle against Satan by fighting against his ensnaring schemes and temptations. If we are to hear this and be pressed into battle, we must fight against temptation. The Lord has provided the way of escape It's by walking in the power of his Holy Spirit in accordance with his word. We fight this battle by pursuing devoted, united fellowship with our fellow saints. You understand that Satan rules this world and he makes war against you, so we need to stand together with one another. We, we are stronger when we stand together than we are when we stand individually. Stand arm in arm with your fellow saints. Lastly, but also firstly, and this this is the first and the last because this is the battle you fight every day, but it must also be the first battle that you fight to enter into this war. You must avoid Satan's judgment. You do that by coming to Christ, the light of life. You're delivered from darkness to life by coming to Christ as the light of life. But you come to Him not just one time, you come to Christ day after day after day. So we're kept by Christ. We're kept from Satan, and the Lord does this, dear friend, through our belief in the truth. So, kept by Christ, kept from Satan, and kept in truth, verses 20 and 21. And we know that the Son of God has come, and He has given us understanding so that we may know Him who is true. And we are in Him who is true, in His Son, Jesus Christ. This is the true God and eternal life. So there's a lot of words there. And ultimately what this boils down to in verse 20 is that Christ has come and he has revealed himself to us. He has given us understanding. In Luke 24, verse 45, when Jesus was on the road to Emmaus with a couple of his followers... Luke tells us that Christ opened their minds to understand the Scriptures. He opened their minds by His Spirit, opened their minds to understand the truth. The way that we are kept in the truth is that Christ manifests and reveals Himself to us. He reveals Himself to us, dear friends, how? In the 66 books of the Bible, He reveals all that we need to know. By his spirit, he makes it plain and clear and true to us. And then he gives us life. He grants us faith. It is a gift from our Savior to us. He grants saving faith. He gives us his spirit. And these lead without fail to increasing knowledge and wisdom. He doesn't grant you understanding so that you might just remain at the status quo. He gives you of His Spirit so that you grow in your knowledge of the truth. But not just the knowledge, but the application of the truth. That is that you grow in wisdom. These are given by Christ. You remember Ephesians 2 verse 8. For by grace you have been saved through faith. And that, not of yourselves, it's a gift of God. Your faith and your understanding are gifts from the Lord. It's not only, though, dear friends, that we understand the truth. James would tell us that we are of the truth. James 1, verse 18, In the exercise of God's will, He brought us forth. He gave birth to us, literally the exercise of his will, he brought us forth by the word of truth so that we would be a kind of first fruits among his creatures. We are in him who is true. We are brought forth and given life by the truth. Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but through him. You recall, John's chief enemy, as we're wrapping up this epistle, the chief enemy that John had in mind as he wrote this was the Gnostics, who rejected the true Jesus. And and you understand then why this is his great end, why this is his great summary, because they rejected Jesus. But he says, we know that the Son of God has come, and he's given us understanding, so that we may know him who's true, and we are in him. And we're in His Son, Jesus Christ. This is the true God and eternal life. The true and the same God. Jesus is God. Jesus is eternal life. The end of the Christian life is what? The end of the Christian life is to know Christ. And we know Christ when we are conformed to His image. To walk in a true relationship with Him means that you will be made like Him. You will put off the sin that entangles and encumbers you. You will run with perseverance the race that is set before you. You will be like Christ. So let's come to verse 21. Again, kept in truth. We're keeping this under the same heading, because I think John has a clear instruction for us. Little children, guard yourselves from idols. I think MacArthur explains this well. He said, This reflects the crucial significance of worshiping the true God exclusively. He continued on the danger of idolatry was especially serious in Ephesus, which is where John probably was when he wrote this epistle. But, MacArthur reminds, the danger was not confined to Ephesus. The danger of idolatry continues on today. Whatever falsehood, whatever heresy, whatever whatever battle we are facing, this truth extends overall. God demands to be worshipped rightly and exclusively. All worship that does not accord with the truth is idolatry and what was the worship battle they were facing it was the truth of jesus Vodi bacham explains worship this way he said true worship happens when we set our mind's attention and heart's affection on the lord praising him for who he is and what he has done if you don't get jesus right You can't praise Him for who He is. You certainly can't praise Him for what He's done, because if He's not who He said He is, He didn't accomplish anything. The transformed Christian life is marked by transformed worship. We will not live holy lives, dear friends, if we as a church participate in any form of profane worship. That's why we need to be careful in the ways that we in the songs that we sing. We need to be careful in the way that we come to the Lord's table. We, we need to be careful in how we order and structure our worship service and everything we do. Because a transformed life will not come if you are part of of a church who worships the Lord profanely. Little children, guard yourselves from idolatry. MacArthur concluded in agreement with the beloved apostle here. He said, though few in our contemporary culture worship physical idols, idolatry is widespread nonetheless. Anything that people elevate above God and above His revealed truth is an idol Of the heart. Dear friends, anything that is elevated above God's revealed truth is an idol. We need to destroy speculations. We need to destroy every lofty thing raised up against the knowledge of God. And we need to take captive every thought and make it obedient to Christ. What is the outworking of guarding yourselves from idols? What is the way that you guard yourself from idolatry? If you remember a couple weeks ago, I think I gave you kind of three overarching headings for this epistle. Right faith, faithful obedience, and obedient love. Right faith, faithful obedience, and obedient love. If you walk in that, dear friend, you will not worship profanely. You will be guarding yourselves from idolatry. So may the Lord take this letter written some 2,000 years ago. This is the amazing thing of Scripture. John wrote this some 2,000 years ago, and here we are still receiving God's instruction. And being sanctified by his instruction. So may the Lord take this word and write it upon our hearts. May he cause us to love and honor and obey Christ in all that we do. May we walk in right, true, genuine faith. May we pursue faithful obedience to all that God has commanded And may we obediently love one another, because love is from God. God is love. May we stand in and upon the truth for the glory of God, for Christ is worthy of the glory of his church. Dear friend, what a great hope that we are kept by Christ. We have, dear friend, victory in Jesus. Let's pray.